you know, my nature retreats where we are outside all day for days on end, um, cultivating mindful awareness internally, externally, then um, what happens as you experience, for those of you who are outside for the sunset, the impact and the potency of that connection between the that inner light of awareness that's been cultivated and then the outer beauty just is become it's magnificent right? our capacity to take in and appreciate this earth this beauty this wondrous place right? but if we haven't cultivated that awareness it's like you know, it's not the it's not the same no, that's cool. <laughs> Let me get a selfie. <laughs> right, it's a different quality of presence. So here we are on our last night. May have flown by for some, may have dragged by <laughs> for others. <laughs> Or some combination. So I want to carry on the thread of conversation around awareness and the relationship between what we've been doing here in our mindfulness practice, awareness, and what the point of this practice is. with the question, what are we doing here? What is all this for? As the Buddha said, to what end? To what end do we do this practice? This is from the Buddha. He says, the essence of the spiritual life does not lie in virtue, meditation, or understanding. The unshakable liberation of the heart, that is the essence, goal, and perfection of the spiritual life the unshakable liberation of the heart, the mind-heart, really, be a more accurate translation. So that is the essence, goal, and orientation, right? To find what it means to be a free human being on this planet. So the point isn't to become an expert meditator (laughs) or someone who just lives on retreat. Although you could, a bad thing to do. But we're not here to make you into professional meditators per se. Point is to wake up. The, The meditation is in service of understanding, awakening, clarity. To understand how we get caught moment by moment in reactive states of suffering. So another quote from the Buddha. So the, the, in, in terms of the teachings um, the Buddha talked about Nibbana as a, uh, you, know, you could say, the culmination of or the fruit of this path. Right? Let me just talk a little about what Nibbana is and make it relatable because sometimes it can seem very removed and abstract. But he talked about it as the supreme peace, a lasting refuge in this tumultuous, changing world. He said, Enraptured with greed, enraged with anger, and blinded by delusion, overwhelmed with mind ensnared, people aim at their own ruin, the ruin of others, and the ruin of both, and experience mental pain and grief. But if greed, anger, and delusion are relinquished, 
One aims neither at one's ruin, nor at the ruin of others, nor at the ruin of both, and they experience no pain and grief. This is nirvana visible in this life, immediate, inviting, attractive, and comprehensible to the wise. So this word nibbana is an interesting word, and it's, as many things do, get co-opted by the culture. I've seen, there was a, what was the ad? There was a woman up in the Teton National Park drinking sun-kissed orange juice and saying, this is what nirvana looks like. <laughs> we live in a funny culture, you know, well, that's all I can say. Um, so the word nirvana literally means cool, to, to cool out. It's the ultimate cool. It, it's a colloquial uh, word that comes from people using the word um, uh, a verb to cool out, as in the rice is cooling down, cooling out after it's taken off the heat. So this this nirvana is a cooling out of something. It's a cooling out of our reactivity. Right? If you think of our reactivity as being hot, as prickly, as uh, fiery, and um, Burning, yeah. So we're cooling out that fire of the reactive mind. So just as when a fire cools out, a fire burns based on the fuel of the fire, the wood. In the same way, our reactivity, the fuel of our reactivity, is the mind of greed and hatred and ignorance in all of its subtle and gross forms. So the, the insight part of this practice is to pay attention to when the mind is ensnared with that demand, that grip, that fixation, that resistance, that hatred, prejudice, rejection, and ignorance. So the most spiritual traditions, and certainly Buddhism is no exception, use, utilize the, this, this idea of being on a path. Right? I imagine most of you can uh, relate to the idea of being on a path. Right? So I'm on a path, and I'm, right? which is a fine metaphor on one level. The problem with the metaphor of a path is it it denotes this idea that I'm here and the goal is like way over there in the distant mountains and it's a long way from here to there and I won't be happy and free until I've got my body and mind over there. Right? That sound about right? right? The path you go, there's a beginning and an end. But life is, I mean, you can say life's a path, but it's not so linear in that way, as I've been pointing to, the, the practice, our mind, reality is not linear. We don't plod from A to Z, and once we're at Z, then we rest in our spiritual retirement home. Right? We practice here, and we wake up here, moment by moment. We have this common misconception that, you know, you hear about these people having these enlightenment experiences and these satori's and these breakthroughs and and it's as if they can suddenly like that's it they can just you know clock out and be done with all this hard work spiritual meditation grind right? doesn't work like that right? life continues to present itself with life with its challenges and its stresses and its um, invitations and decisions and um, its uh, our physical state that continues to age and, and decline despite how free we are in our mind. Right? Or loved ones that get older and sicker and pass away. Right? None of those conditions get any easier. Like they get harder. 
as you know. So, Achampurudasa was a wonderful meditation master from Thailand. One of the the, great minds of Thai Buddhism in the last century, in my opinion. The little I know of the tradition. But renowned scholar and, and teacher. And he was very had a very radical perspective on some of the some of the Buddhist teachings, including this and his understanding of nirvana, nirvana, where he said, you know, as uh, relating to what the Buddha was speaking about earlier, if nirvana is really the uprooting of the force in the mind of self-centered greed, of hatred and all of its forms, subtle or gross, and delusion, then when we have moments, which we do, we have many, many, many moments, even in a day, where the mind is free from those grips, then we can taste moments of nirvana. So I would surmise that many of you have had moments of nirvana on this retreat. You may not have labeled them as such. You might have thought that was a little bit of a hubris to say, wow, it's a moment of nirvana I just had there. <laughs> Check it out. Mine was longer than your moment. <laughs> but we do. He said if we didn't have these moments of cessation of the forces, these, these, these egoic forces of wanting, demanding, resisting, and, delu- and deluding, that's a verb, we would burn ourselves out. We would just be consumed by all that rage and reactivity, right? It's because we have these moments of nirvana in between, as it were, the reactivity, that we can actually both be sane, have relationships, function at work, and uh, you know, have, a, you know, have a healthy life. But the more access do we have to these non-reactive qualities or states of being, the more we actually abide in a deeper sense of well-being and peace. So I've always found this teaching very um, illuminating and um, hopeful, right? Because, you know, if you've you know, read anything about Buddhism, you'll know that it's very idealistic, right? It posits this human potential of the, the potential of a human being to, to develop these you know, beautiful qualities of equanimity and mindfulness and presence and awareness and kindness and compassion and freedom and generosity. And it's like, wow, that's a lot. I feel tired just reading the list. And yet here is a great meditation master saying, yes, and you have taste of the fruit of where this practice is leading. And through mindfulness and discrimination, we can actually live our way into much more abiding in this quality that, f- that feels free and non-reactive and awake. So when we let go, you know, just think about the times that you were caught in some reactivity this, this week. Maybe reactivity to some physical pain or some reactivity to something in the environment. You know, someone was, as that person on the retreat said, had swishy pants. You know, someone, something was bugging you. You were cold, you were too hot, you were too tired, you were hungry, whatever it was. And you were caught in, in reacting and grumbling and moaning and blaming and judging and all the things we do when we're not happy. And then for whatever reason, some moment of mindfulness surfaced and we go, wow, that's really just making me feel worse, all that judging and complaining. And, and we see that and we let go. We release the reactivity. Right? And in that moment of release, it's like, oh. You know, we stop fighting with our knee pain and we, we soften around it or we move. What a radical concept. <laughs> and we find that that moment of ease. Or we, we're so tense and tight, striving in the meditation, and then the bell rings, 
And then there's that moment, there's a moment of nirvana right there. <laughs> That's probably where we experience it the most. <laughs> it's like the fridge going off and bzzz. So it happens when we let go. And with mindfulness, we get to see all the ways that we hold on, that we cling, that we grab, that we fight, that we resist, right? And there's that reading from Fenelon that I read read a few days ago. The seeing of the ways that we cling is a good thing because once we see them, we have an opportunity to release them. No seeing, no hope. With seeing, possibility. Chan Chao, another great Thai meditation master, once wrote, said, let go a little, you have a little peace. Let go a lot, you have a lot of peace. Let go completely, you have complete peace. It's up to you. But we let go really moment by moment. So we get to to, pay attention, where are you holding on? Where do you cling? Someone I once asked the Buddha who was you know, prolific in his teaching said, can you just summarize your teaching in one line? Because, you know, I'm busy and I've got to, you know, get on my cell phone, and, you know, I'm, or whatever, you know, that person was, you know, I don't know, milking cows or, you know. Anyhow, and the Buddha said, Sabe Dhamma Nalama Vinasaya, which means nothing whatsoever is to be clung to. Nothing whatsoever is to be held onto. Right? Nothing whatsoever is to be grasped at with this tight fist of clinging, grasping, craving, holding on, resisting, attaching. Right? When we don't when we when we can release, right, we can know f- peace in that moment. So our lives are like this. We grab, we resist, we, we, resi- we, we get caught, and we see it, and at some point we let go. And then the next one comes, we get tight, react, we get scared, and then we let go, and we soften. And then, you know, that's the practice. Right? And over time, we're moving from this a lot you know, to over time a little more open. Right? We still, you know, still life causes us to get caught, afraid, whatever. So a little uh, example of this for me in my early years of practice. I was in India a lot. I used to go there every year for retreat and uh, study with different teachers. And um, one year I was in a monastery, in Th- it was a Thai monastery in, in Bodh Gaya in where the Buddha were attained his awakening. And... Um, some of you heard this story, but I think it's, it's illustrative of what I'm trying to say. Um, so in this 20-day retreat, concrete, big concrete, Dharma Hall, and we were, the village was all around the monastery. And um, it's a busy pilgrim season. There's a lot of tourists and monks and pilgrims and lots of bustle outside the, the temple gates. And... Um, in this particular year, uh, uh, a market got set up outside the temple gates, and one of the stalls was a, um, a travel agent. And they put a loudspeaker on top of the market stall, and they were advertising bus tickets to the uh, Tibetan pilgrims who would walk by thousands and the thousands of them. And and it was very loud, and it was pointing towards the monastery. <laughs> and it was a little tape loop in the days of cassette tapes. Remember those cassette tapes? <laughs> and it would go, hello, 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 trying to get people's attention. And then it would say some words in Hindi. And then, you know, Bombay, Calcutta, Darjeeling, Madras, Delhi. And then some more words in Hindi. And then rewind. <laughs> His little crack. Hello, 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 hello. (laughs) 
and you're meditating, minding your own business, and oh, hello, hello. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> so, and this went on for days. So this is a 20-day retreat, started, the, I don't know, day two or three or something. And it was loud, you know, every morning, every night. Hello, 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 hello. <laughs> it was like, you know, and all this sort of like righteous indignation. Don't you know this is a meditation retreat and we're trying to be so holy in here and you're just selling those things out there, and, you know, blah, 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 blah. You know, lots of... Anyhow, so it went on and, you know, we pray for the Indian electricity to go out, which it would, does frequently in Bihar. It's the poorest state. And um, anyhow, it was really interesting to watch the mind get murderously rageful. Like, you know, we weren't allowed to leave the ground, so we couldn't, you know, do any nonviolent direct action. And, you know, whatever we were going to do, you know, we couldn't pray to Ganesh or something. Um, Anyhow, so, but it was really interesting. Over time, you know, here we are practicing non-reactivity, right? (laughs) kill you. No. Breathe. And over time, you just have to let go. At some point, you can, you know, we were going to suffer for 20 days hating it or just see it as sounds, as all the other sounds, as the, as the car noises and the people noises. and Just, oh, it's just sound. It's just hearing. It's just another experience. It doesn't have to, it doesn't bother awareness. It bothers my reactive mind, but not awareness. And so over the days, it began to see, oh, it's just sound. And then it became amusing. And then it would disappear for a while because the electricity went out. And then it would come back and be like, oh, there's the sound. <laughs> hello, hello, hello. <laughs> you know, in that very endearing accent. Um, anyhow, so what the teaching is, the sound didn't need to go away for me to find peace in the midst of it. The peace came from letting go whether the sound was there or not. In the same way that I talked about a couple nights ago with the hindrances, this movement of reactivity towards or away, think of all the things that you perpetually uh, are grasping after. And I'm not talking about healthy, wholesome plans, goals, you know, intentions for your life and work and your family. But, well, like, although it could be those things, but the grasping that forms around them, the demanding that forms around them, the incessant wanting something that's not here, right? that's clinging, right? demanding that life be a certain way. A lot of clinging going on right now around the election for various good reasons, I might add, but still, from whatever political spectrum you're on, there's a lot of clinging, right? Each think the other's a demon. You know, it's not that we don't care, but we don't cling in a way that causes that brittleness and harshness of mind that creates an other from our position, for example. So I was working, did I tell a story about a hedge fund the other day? I didn't? Okay. So I did. Yeah, it all gets muddled in somewhere. So I was working in this hedge fund um, in, uh, locally. And I was coaching some executives. And um, I went in one day, and it was, this was pre-crash. So there was a lot of, you know, a lot of success and booming economy and um, anyhow, the, the, the trade, the main trader had made a particularly successful uh, uh, transaction or series of transactions and made the company a lot of money, like insane amount of money um, in the tens of millions. Um, I think it was about 50 million. And I was going to see him the, the, in the afternoon and I so eventually was working with people and I, he came in and we talked and, and, and he came in and he, he looked particularly stressed. And I thought, wow, this guy's just made a, made more money for himself and the company than most people make in, I don't know, a long, 10 years or something. Or oh, a lifetime, lifetimes, you know. 
And I said, what's going on? And, you know, I, I, had, I had some good things, of, you know, in the portfolio and blah, blah, blah. And he said, yeah, it was good. And, you know, I, I should have held on a little longer. You know, if I just held on, you know, a few more, a few more hours or a few more days, I forget exactly what it was. I would have made a few more million. I think it was Rockefeller who said that one can never make enough, enough money. Right? It's never enough, the clinging, right? No matter how much we have, it's never enough to that mind state of grasping. This is from Nisargadatta, great Indian Advaita teacher. We love variety, the play of pain and pleasure. We are fascinated by contrasts. For this, we need the opposites and their apparent separation. We enjoy them for a time and then get tired and crave for peace and the silence of pure being. Times we get tired and crave for the peace and silence. So, different facets of nibbana, different facets of how we access this quality of freedom. One is through the release of these reactive, painful forces of longing, of rejecting, of delusion, and all the various varieties of that. The other is we, we... we live our way into that experience or understanding through how we perceive. So this morning's meditation on big mind, right, pointing to this spacious awareness, this Teflon mind, mostly our mind is very Velcro, right? things stick to it, and we get stuck and reactive and caught. And, right? we, at times, we can access also, and we can feel into the the nature of awareness itself, which is spacious, open, vast, empty, clear, knowing, not entangled. Right? Does your awareness ever get entangled and reactive in things? Or is it the egoic mind that gets reactive? The awareness is just watching. It's watching the thing that you don't like. It's watching the reactivity to the thing. But it's all just being known. But mostly we get caught and consumed in the minutia and the reactivity and we forget that we can actually take refuge in the awareness that's knowing take refuge in the, the spacious quality of the mind. In the same way that we, when we, we're lost in thought, we, we, we get consumed in the content and we have a moment of mindfulness and we go, oh, oh look at that, planning mind, oh, rehearsing mind. Right? We're shifting from the being caught to just simply being the knowing. As Ajahn Sumedho once said, who's a great meditation teacher, be the knowing, not the conditions that are known. Be the knowing, be the awareness, not wrapped up and embroiled in that which is being known. So with mindfulness, we're doing this little shift over and over from being caught and enmeshed and reactive to, oh, right, fear is like this. Oh, judgment is like this. Reactivity is like this, right? And it's like, it's like, it's like taking a cool shower or something. Is this, am I, am I, are you following me? I'm getting some nods. <laughs> and we, as we, as we, as we mature in our practice, we see this awareness is not only the nature of our mind, but it's ever-present. It doesn't switch off, just like we did that. I'm, I'm appreciating how where we started is also where we're ending, and where we end is also where we start, as in that exercise we did 
don't pay attention, right? don't be aware. Like right now, in case you've forgotten, just practice it right now. Don't be aware, don't notice anything. Don't be mindful. Don't make any effort. And that knowing clarity of awareness reveals itself. It doesn't switch off. So I'll do a a variation of that exercise. This is from my teacher Punjaji, who used to have many ways to shake up the mind. So I want you to close your eyes, just same posture, just close your eyes, just very, just for a minute. So I'm going to repeat a sentence. And the sentence is, I am a meditator sitting here. So just repeat that quietly once to yourself. I am a meditator sitting here. And then I'm going to remove a word each time I say the sentence, and you're going to repeat it silently to yourself. I am a meditator sitting. I am a meditator. I am a... I am. I. Now take away the I. And what is here? What remains? What do you notice? Anyone? Emptiness. Emptiness. Mm -hmm. Spaciousness. Spaciousness. Awareness. Awareness noting him saying all that, yeah. What else? Complete presence. presence. So this movement is shifting from my usual egoic mind perspective to one of radiant awareness that's always available. We just don't remember or know how to look, how to abide there, which is why we practice. So there's a very interesting teaching in the Tibetan tradition on the nature of mind, the nature of mind being awareness itself. And there's four reasons that said why we don't recognize the nature of mind, this jewel of awareness. And the first reason is because it's too near. It's so close, we don't see it. Because it's, it's so part of the fabric, we live with it, in it. It's too near. The second reason, it's too ordinary. It's simply ordinary awareness. It's everyday awareness that you live with, you get up with, you work with, and you play with, and you go to sleep with. It's ordinary awareness. It's not that special. Simply the ability to know what's here moment by moment. A three-year-old child has it. may not be able to articulate it quite. Third reason, too wondrous or too profound. Too amazing. Like amazing, this thing that is invisible, that has no, you know, is able to, you know, ring this bell and we have this capacity to know. 
both hearing it and cognizing it, labeling it. It's amazing. Awareness allows us to have experience, allows us to know our sensory world, allows us to see the beautiful sunset. It's wondrous. And lastly, the fourth reason, too subtle. Where is it? It's intangible, yet present. I want to read a piece of writing from Kala Rinpoche, who was um, one of many great Tibetan teachers on this theme. Truth is here, even in this very moment. Truth is you, in you. You are the silence, truth, awakeness itself. It is here in this very moment, as simple and unaffected, so near, yet we make it so distant when it's so near, so remote when it's so immediate, so complicated when it's so simple. You know what it is like to be at the roadside with your motor car, but to have lost the way. You are the Buddha, which means you are awake, then why do you not feel it? Why don't you know it utterly through and through? Because there is a veil in the way which is attached to appearances, such as the belief that you are not awake, that you are a separate individual. If you cannot lift this veil at once, then it must be dissolved gradually. If you have seen through it totally just once, even one glimpse, then you can see through it all the time. Wherever you are, whatever presents itself, however things seem to be, simply refer to that ever-present, inherent spaciousness, openness, and clarity. Wherever you are, whatever presents itself, simply refer to this ever-present, inherent, spacious, openness, and clarity, this radiant awareness. This is from Shabkar, another great Tibetan yogi. He said, "Let your this is his meditation instructions. Let your mind relax and spontaneous, sp- spontaneously relax and rest. When left to itself, ordinary mind is fresh and naked. If observed, it is a vivid clarity without anything to see. A direct awareness, sharp and awake, awake possessing no existence. It's empty and pure." It's not permanent since it doesn't exist at all. It's not nothingness since its activity is vividly clear and awake. So I'm throwing out these, these, these words I'm throwing out are somewhat poetic. And your mind may go, what is that? I don't really make sense of that. Let, let, let the feeling of it wash through. It's really, it's really poetry. Right? So when we get to more subtle experiences, including awareness, which is both tangible and subtle, Poetry is actually a better use of, of language because it's how can we point to that which we can't see, we can't know. And you know, in neuroscience, they have clueless about what awareness is. You know, where it's located. Right? You know, we can figure out a few areas in the brain that have more brain, more blood flowing when we're thinking and concentrating, but no real understanding of what the mind is or awareness. Right? These are far more subtle subjects that we have a long way to understand. So, what have you noticed from your week here as you, as you learn to uh, abide and dwell in this more radiant awareness, this knowing quality of mindfulness? What do you see? What do you experience? In the beginning, perhaps, you know, we arrive, we're tired, mind's restless, busy, and we can barely stay present right, for more than a few moments. Right? And some of you may say, well, not much has changed. 
Maybe a few more moments longer, you know. <laughs> but I bet if we really pay, if you pay attention, you know, the, you've seen many times, many, many, many times where you've woken up from the trance, from the dream of thought, from distraction, from daydreaming, and you become more present, you feel more awake, more alive at times. This, when we can abide more in awareness, we have more access to equanimity because we're not so caught up in the reactivity to things. There's more spaciousness. I remember, you know, a simple example, when I first used to practice some years, I was sleepy a lot. And I'd always hate being sleepy because I wanted to be, you know, meditating. I wanted to be bright. I wanted to be awake. I didn't want to meditate and fall asleep. What's the point of that? I'm going to take a nap to do that. <laughs> so I'd always get tight and I'd, I'd you know, just, just make such a big deal out of being sleepy. And at some point, so I just thought, oh, it's just sleepiness. It's just the body's tired. It's not a big deal. My mind's a bit dull. My body's a bit heavy. So what? You know, a simple example, but there's just like, oh, and then, and then, then there's a welcoming of sleepiness. Sleepiness comes, sleepiness goes. From the perspective of awareness, it doesn't matter. It's just the next thing to be present for. Same with the, the thinking mind. I used, to, I used to have a terrible time with my mind wandering, and I'd judge it, and I'd beat up on myself, and until at some point it's like, the mind wanders. That's what it does. It's what's done for decades, and it's not going to give up anytime soon just because I call myself a meditator. It's just what minds do. They get busy. They think. They plan. They're restless. They're anxious. And so with that, from the perspective of awareness, oh, it's just thought. It's just thoughts coming and going. It's not a big deal. When we're um, abiding in awareness, there's less reactivity to things we don't like. I remember not long ago, I just think I just come from Europe. I just done a long haul somewhere, from somewhere to somewhere. And I was really tired. It was like way past midnight. And we were in this ridiculously long immigration line and um, a passport control thing. And um, I was standing behind this, uh, uh, this Arabic woman with two kids. And one was screaming. Because it was late, you know, and probably been flying Paul off for, you know, God knows how many hours. So she was holding one young one, and the other one was screaming. And she just, you know, and I, fir- and I, so I first got to the line, I was like, oh, God, no. It's like, it's like I was looking, see how far it was to get the passport. It was like an hour, you know, more. And I said, oh, God, you know, screaming kids. You know, that, that thought, that cartoon, you know, I want to be in the present moment, but not this one. <laughs> it's like, get me out of here. And then I, then I said, I like, okay, just, you know, be present here. And I, and I looked and I just took her situation in. This poor woman traveled for a long way, two, two kids. She's exhausted. The kid's exhausted and screaming. And I just had just a lot of compassion, you know, because I, I, I got present. I got out of my own reactivity, my own self-centered, I don't want to be next to screaming kids, <laughs> to, oh, yeah, this is just, this is humanity and this is how it is, you know. I actually, it's my favorite practice to do on planes. I can guarantee pretty much every flight I go on, the child is placed behind me. <laughs> the ones that like to kick the seat in front of them because it's fun. <laughs> and I just laugh now. I go, I go on the, and I, I see, I look for the child and I, I must be sitting over there. <laughs> and it's just, okay, I guess this is my time to practice, to rest in awareness and see how I'm doing. There's more humor, you know, when we can, when we can, when we have that spacious awareness, we can see the humor of things, the humor of our follies and our foibles and our pettiness and, uh, you know, I want my, you know, someone took my umbrella, how dare they? Okay, it's not really a big deal. It allows us to disentangle from the entanglements of our thoughts, from our fantasies, from our fears, from 
I mean, I could give a whole talk on on the blessings of awareness that allows us to shift from our small mind to spacious clarity, right? And so the more we plant seeds of mindfulness, the more we pop out of that embroiled, attached, reactive place to seeing. And when we see, we're no longer caught. It's not that the fear or the anger may disappear, it might still stay, but if we're, if we're resting in awareness with it, we're not, we're not spinning. Another of the beautiful things that happens is we get a little less self-preoccupied, a little less wrapped up in our own story and wrapped up in our own self and our own needs and wants. There's a little more spaciousness around it. It's like we're almost observing it from a third-person perspective. Because we're not so wrapped up here, there's a little more awareness of other people, of situations, of the need for, for, for it to respond, the need to help. We get less caught up in our own drama, we can actually have, be more responsive to others. Just like the, the lady at the bus stop. And there's a beautiful word in the, in the Hindu tradition called Leela which one translation is it means play. And again, when we, when, when we can see and abide more in awareness, we see that life, not, not denying the suffering of life, which there's a tremendous amount, but we see also there's a certain play in it, that it's all a certain kind of drama playing itself out selflessly, impersonally. And so we choose to interact, you know, as Jesus of Nazareth said, to be of the earth, but to be in the world, but not of it. There's a little, so we engage and we play in it, but there's not, there's not the stickiness, there's not the painfulness of it. And lastly, and as I was speaking to last night, as we again get, get out of ourselves, get out of our own way, that the... The I have to say, the the heart begins to open more. I don't know how best to describe it. When we're not so wrapped so wrapped up in self-centered demand or obsession or need, then there's more capacity to be present for others, to connect, to have empathy, to respond, to be kind. This is uh, one of my favorite haikus from a great Japanese poet, Isa. He says, if I expand the sense of who I am anymore, I will break into cherry blossoms. If I expand the self, if I expand the sense of who I am anymore, if if I cease to identify with this narrow, egoic self, and all the stories and dramas and pettiness that goes with our ego machinations. If we keep expanding that as we abide more in awareness, maybe we'll break into cherry blossoms or or more, more likely break into more love, more likely break into more capacity, more likely break into more desire to relieve suffering in the world because at some point that's the only thing that makes sense when we sort of stop being so bothered by what's going on here and you know, we take care of it but we're not so consumed what matters is we actually make a difference in the world and that we relieve the suffering in whatever small or large way that we can Nisargadatta Maharaj put it this way he says love says tells me I am nothing I'm empty no 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 Say that. Stop. Delete that line. You never heard anything. Wisdom tells me I am nothing. Empty. Wisdom tells me I am nothing. Love tells me I am everything. Between the two, my life flows. Wisdom tells me I am nothing. In perspective, perspective awareness, wisdom tells us 
There's no drama here. It's just empty, conditioned life flowing. Love tells me I'm everything, not separate from anything. Between the two, my life flows. So let's sit for a few moments. Let's abide in a radiant awareness. Resting in awareness, simply present to both that luminous quality of awareness, open, empty, and present to the various comings and goings, the phenomena, the appearances. from the words of Gendon Rinpoche. Don't strain yourself. Happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower, but is already present in open relaxation and letting go. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.